Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species is a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. Recent podcasts, audio on demand and live streaming available from the 3CR website. All podcasts are available from the Freedom of Species website and you can subscribe to the program via iTunes. I'm Kate Elliott. On today's program, we're broadcasting one of the presentations from the 2015 Animal Activist Forum. The talk was presented by Emma Hurst, a registered psychologist and the campaign director at Animal Liberation New South Wales. Emma drew on both of these areas of expertise to present her talk using psycholinguistics to create strong messages for change. Psycholinguistics is the psychology of language. So over the next hour, Emma leads us through an exploration into why the majority of the population who state that they are against animal cruelty at the same time support animal abuse through their food choices by funding the industries that farm and harm animals. So every food dollar that is spent on buying animal products is also a dollar supporting animal harm. Emma uses her knowledge of psycholinguistics to analyse how the livestock agriculture industry has crafted strong messages to increase the consumption of animal products despite people's love for animals. But she also looks at the other side. So she looks at how the animal protection community, the animal protection activists, can use psycholinguistics to create their own powerful messages that will reduce or even eliminate the consumption of animal products. When the talk was presented at the forum last October... It was so popular that the organisers had to arrange a room change, so relocate the talk to a larger room. And i got to say, upon listening to it again, there is so much in this talk that I'm glad that we can create a podcast out of Emma's talk so it can be listened to multiple times. There are so many gems in this talk that we'll be playing in the next hour to take away that sometimes you need to listen to it a few times as almost like a reference or a resource. So please stay with us. But before I do press play on Emma's presentation, I would like to mention that today is the National Day of Action to call for a ban on greyhound racing in Australia. Rallies are being held in multiple venues around Australia today and it's timed in the hope of influencing the New South Wales Special Commission Greyhound Racing Inquiry. The recommendations are expected to be announced in March. There's already been a few other state inquiries, so in Queensland and Victoria, and these inquiries were instigated after undercover investigations into the greyhound industry exposed systemic animal abuse, and not just of the greyhounds, but animals being used as live bait in greyhound training practices called blooding greyhounds. So piglets, possums, rabbits, and even it's been um, put forward that kittens were strapped alive to lures and spun around the racetrack to encourage dogs to follow the lure and race. And the way that greyhounds were rewarded is that they could then horrifically maul to death these small animals. So that footage was, I guess, rock the nation when Four Corners broadcast it. That program ended up getting a Walkley Award for investigative journalism. But it wasn't just live baiting. That was only the beginning Um The live baiting was exposed to be widespread and that it was by the industry's most celebrated participants, so the big names of the industry, 
and the prize winners. But what, as I said, that was only the beginning. Once the spotlight was on this industry, we also found out a lot more horrific things about this industry, including that the industry kills around as many as 17,000 young and healthy greyhounds every year, purely because they won't make money. Um, They also uh, admitted that only 200 dogs every year will be rehomed by the industry-funded rehoming program. So with those figures, it's effectively a humane wash, the rehoming program for the lucky 200 dogs that actually make it into that program. What also became evident through further investigation is that racing in itself for the dogs that do make it to the track is extremely stressful on the dog's body and hundreds of greyhounds die or are fatally injured every year on the racetrack. Animals Australia estimates it to be around about five dogs killed trackside each week um, due to career-ending injuries. There's a lot more about the the local Australian industry um, that leads you to believe that this industry should no longer exist, that it should be banned. But these we're also exporting um, greyhounds into the hands of the Macau Canadrome. This is called the world's deadliest track where no dog leaves alive. Every dog that arrives at that racetrack will be dead within three years and our government is approving those exports. So since the public attention on this industry and even with the recommendations that we've seen so far in Queensland and Victoria or especially from those recommendations, it is evident that this racing greyhound racing industry is beyond reform, that it needs to be shut down. We have done a program on this in the past. If you want to know a bit more about the background, there's a lot more to this industry that gives weight to the reasons why it should be shut down. Um, You can visit our website. We've got that podcast on our website. It does feature one of our most requested tunes that I'll give another spin today uh, in support of everyone who is taking it to the streets and calling for the barbaric greyhound racing to end, or we should more accurately call it the greyhound gambling industry to be shut down. So here it is. This is Maria Danes with Racing to Death. If I don't win today, I won't be here again. I've seen it happen to my friends when their running days are done. Will it be over for me soon? Can I come home with you? I'm a greyhound on the outside With a big heart on the inside I've run so many times Just a number on the lines Just another winning streak Just to gamble at my peak but soon I will be late I'll be out of this sad game I'm a dog like any other When my glory days are over And I'm racing to death For the price of a bet My life is a stake Just a winner for a day So here I am, I'm lost I've seen the gun, I heard the shot I saw my friend old Billy Jack I saw them drag him on his back I don't know who is gonna save me Please don't let him take me I'm a greyhound on the outside a big heart on the inside And I'm racing to death For the 
You're tuned to 3CR, Community Radio, 8.55am, listening to the weekly animal advocacy radio program, Freedom of Species. The tune you just heard was by UK singer-songwriter Maria Danes. Her commentary on the greyhound racing industry, it was titled, appropriately, Racing to Death. Uh, I also appreciate how she highlights that greyhounds are, like any greyhound uh, guardian would know, are really gentle creatures that really just want to be loved and spend a bit of time on your couch. In fact, uh, uh, probably a lot of time on your couch. Coming up now on the program, we have a pre-recorded presentation by Emma Hurst, a registered psychologist and the campaign director at Animal Liberation New South Wales. She presented at the recent Animal Activist Forum back in October in 2015. And the title of her talk that you'll hear today is Using Psycholinguistics to Create Strong Messages for Change. So that's coming up. We'll just listen to a couple of 3CR community announcements and then the talk by Emma Hurst. Series in East Brunswick has a new state-of-the-art community kitchen. The kitchen is available to hire seven days a week by individuals or groups who want to run a workshop or a course, hold an event or just get together to cook with friends. The series is also running team building days and hens parties with a difference. Get in touch with us at series.org.au or call 9389 0100 to find out more. Series Community Kitchen, celebrating collaboration and food. Group space for hire to train, connect and inspire. Series, a 3CR supporter. Oh, no. Freeze, fellas, you're under arrest. What do I do? Um, call a lawyer? Hello, Fitzroy Legal Service. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, well, if you are arrested, you should make a no-comment interview. A no-comment interview? Yeah. Well, how do I do that? You say... No No comment! To everything? Yes, except your name and address. Every other question you should answer with no comment. So if he asks me what colour my shoes are, I say no comment? Yes, you say... No No comment! To everything? Yes. Say no no comment. comment. If you are arrested, exercise your right to contact a lawyer and say no comment. Fitzroy Legal Service proudly supporting 3CR. So I'm Emma Hurst and I am the campaign director at Animal Liberation in New South Wales. Um, I'm also a registered psychologist, so I completed my master's in health psychology. So health psychology is quite different to clinical or counselling psychology. Health psychologists are hired to run mass behaviour change campaigns. So basically, we're the psychologists that come in with the idea of changing an entire population's behaviour. So um, most commonly, they'd be hired, for example, to run uh, behaviour change campaigns that are based on people's health, so encouraging people to, for example, quit smoking. Um, or a really popular and well-known one is to encourage people to wear seatbelts. So when you actually start to look at trying to change an entire population and change everybody's behaviour, you've got education and you've got law reform, but the third part of that puzzle is to actually encourage people to change their behaviour. And the seatbelt one is a really good example because um, they changed the law And then they did a whole lot of education to people to explain to them why we've made this new law that you have to wear your seatbelts. And yet the majority of the population still was not wearing seatbelts. And it wasn't until the psychology campaign became part of it that we started to actually find what people's values were, what they believed, and encourage them to actually make that behaviour change. So what I want to talk about today is framing and messaging. So what words that we use to try to change people's behaviour. When I talk about frames, there's two different frames that you need to be aware of. There's the frame that every individual comes with and then there's the frame for your own message that you're going to encapsulate your message in. So when I talk about a personal frame, each one of us walks around with sort of like a frame. I sort of imagine it like a big picture frame. And that frame is based on your beliefs, the stories that you've heard, the things that you've been told, um, the way you've grown up, your own experiences. So for some of us, our frames might be quite similar. 
So Elizabeth Usher and I might have quite a similar frame. We're a similar age group, we're both female, we both live in Sydney, we've both worked at Animal Liberation, we're both vegan animal rights activists. We've still got quite a few differences and so we will still experience life quite differently and we'll interpret messages differently. But if we were to look at the daughter of a pig farmer, her frame is dramatically different to Elizabeth's and my frame. And what happens is that frame may actually change how somebody interprets your message and they may actually interpret your message inaccurately based on their frame. So when, when I talk about interpreting things incorrectly, a really good example of that is when we come to people with a fact. So when I say something to somebody that is factual, and I know it's factual, they may not understand it as being factual. So as it, for example, if we look at this image, I'm not sure if you can see A and B. Can everybody see the second, the second block in is A and this one is B. Do they look like they are the same colour or different colours? Different? If I create a border, you can now see that block A and block B are actually exactly the same colour. So this is just another optical illusion. We've all seen optical illusions. But if we look back at the figure A, they still look different, right? Even though I've given you the facts, they still don't look the same, correct? And I had a really good experience of this the other day. I was, I was talking to a, a young man that was talking about bodybuilding and he was a big uh, muscly bodybuilder um, and I was talking about being vegan. He said, well, I can't do that because I'm a bodybuilder. You know, I need, I need animal protein. And so I started to talk to him about plant-based proteins and I started to talk to him about uh, the cruelty-free festival and that, you know, there was bodybuilders, Robert Cheek, coming from the USA and he's enormous and have a look at his picture. And I was talking about it and I was talking about, you know, how, you know what makes you think that uh, animal protein is superior to plant protein. And I looked at his face and he was completely and utterly confused and it didn't matter how factual the things I was saying were he still didn't believe me because he was so convinced, 100%, that to be a bodybuilder, you had to have animal protein. So nothing I was saying was actually penetrating. It wasn't sinking in. And there's been a lot of research on that in psychology as well. They actually had a whole group of people um, that had you know, various beliefs, religious beliefs, um, um, other beliefs like aliens, and they collected all the facts against that person's belief. And they had them in groups, and so they surveyed them on how strongly they held their beliefs. Then they sat them down, and they gave them every fact that proved that their belief wasn't true. Then they surveyed them again at the end to find out if their belief had changed and every single one of them held more strongly to their belief despite, the fact that, despite all the facts that had been given to them. So this is something that's, that's quite strong and that's why quite often if we sit there and have a factual argument with somebody, it doesn't work um, if they don't quite believe it. The other thing to remember is that people can believe two things at once, um, even if those two thing, things conflict. So something like um, absence makes the heart grow fonder or out of sight, out of mind. We might believe both of those statements. Um, probably a more common one amongst animal rights groups and animal rights people is, I love animals, uh, but that person eats animals. And we've often heard animal rights people say, well, you can't love animals because you eat them. So we, you know... I mean, they're not lying that they love animals and they're not um, just pretending and they actually hate animals and they want them to die. They've got two beliefs that don't quite marry up. So they've got a belief that I like animals, I don't want animals harmed, but then they've got a set of other beliefs. And I've heard a few people talk about some of those most common beliefs um, throughout the day and yesterday. So things like I have to eat animals for health or it's natural and it's normal. So sometimes they are holding these two beliefs and they conflict. And what happens is when we expose something, so say animal liberation suddenly exposes mass animal cruelty at a slaughterhouse um, next week. 
suddenly a lot of people become aware that they've got two beliefs and that their behaviours don't match one of their beliefs. So one of those beliefs is, I'm against cruelty to animals. And suddenly they realise that their own behaviour doesn't actually sit... They're not following their own values and their own beliefs. And that creates what's called cognitive dissonance. So we're putting people into a state of cognitive dissonance. They feel uncomfortable. They know that their behaviours don't reflect their beliefs and their values. So at that point, something has to happen. And remembering 96% of people are against animal cruelty, but 92% of them are still funding for it to continue. So we know that most people are against animal cruelty, but for whatever reason the beliefs that it's okay to do this are overriding that belief that animal cruelty is wrong. So a few things can happen. They can either change their behaviour, which is what's happened to the majority of us in this room. If you weren't born a vegan, at some point you probably reached a state of cognitive dissonance and you realised that your behaviour didn't reflect your values. So you made a decision to change your behaviour. Sometimes the opposite can happen. Sometimes we can convince ourselves that something that's actually immoral is actually okay. And we can do that through things such as denial. So the footage is from the US, um, or that doesn't happen here in Australia. Often there's a very strong belief that um, you know, Australia has the best animal welfare in the world. We often hear the industry saying that. Uh, Minimisation. So that was just a rogue operator, or I only eat free-range animals. Passive aggression, so general negative feelings towards vegetarians. Isolations, um, so um, if you have somebody that might delete you on Facebook because they're sick of seeing all the posts you write about animal cruelty, so they're trying to isolate themselves from being exposed to that, to get rid of that feeling of cognitive dissonance. Repression, so pushing the ideas out of their mind. And humour, so making fun of vegans um, and making fun of killing animals, which we've all uh, been exposed to quite a lot. The good news, however, is that these feelings of dissonance uh, reflect a fundamental discomfort with animal cruelty. So somewhere that value and that belief system is sitting in 96% of people. What we have to do as activists is make that value and that belief the primary value and belief, and that that primary value and belief overrides any other beliefs and values that the industry is actually pushing. Sun is high up in the sky my car Drifting down into the abattoir See what I see, dear Yeah, grows heavy Listen to your breath Entwined together In this culture of death Do you see what I see, dear Sliding over here Let me give you a squeeze To avert this unholy evolutionary trajectory can you hear what I hear, babe? Does it make you feel free? Everything's dissolving, babe, just a code in the play. The sky's on fire, the dead are heaped across the lane. I went to bed last night and my moral coat got jammed. Up this morning with a frappuccino in my hand. Do you 
see what I see, dear A line that God throws down to you and me Makes it pleasing geometry Shall we leave this place now, dear? Is there some way out of here? The sparrows in a hurry after work. The need for validation become completely berserk. I wanna be a superman, but I turned such a jerk. I got the abattoir blues. I got the abattoir blues. I got the That was Abattoir Blues by Nick Cave. You're tuned to Freedom of Species, Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. Partway through a pre-recorded presentation by Emma Hurst. Emma is a registered psychologist and also the campaign director at Animal Liberation New South Wales. And she's drawing on these areas of expertise in her presentation using psycholinguistics to create strong messages for change. We'll return to Emma's presentation. She's discussing how the livestock agriculture industry creates strong messages to promote their animal products and distract from people's feelings of cognitive dissonance that she was talking about earlier in her presentation. So say we do that expose of the abattoir. How does the industry respond? What, what sort of things does the industry say in their response? It's a rogue operator. It's a one-off. What's that? Yep. So they they start to use some of these. Some of the things that I just gave as examples then are all the uh, responses from the industry. And these aren't accidental responses. They've actually sat down and worked out their responses. And they use the same thing, all of these things, in every single one of their advertising. They use... um, So they play on the idea of cognitive dissonance. They play on the the idea that um, people want to be able to deny it, to minimalise it, to isolate themselves from it. They use humour. And they pull on only a very small number of values. So if we have a look at some of their advertising, what does this ad play on? A little bit of humour. Yep. And yep. Yep. So they're playing on the value of health, um, and that gets rid of the cognitive dissonance, obviously, by saying that you have to have it. You know, it's something that's essential for human beings. So it's playing on that that belief system. And the other thing as well is it's still an essential part. Essential, healthy. And of course, they often use this whole idea of things being Australian. Again, healthy. And this one also plays on something else. Tradition. Yep. Normality. It is so normal for human beings to eat meat that it's been happening for millions of years. This is completely normal, completely healthy, essential. So I'm not sure how well you can see that, but that's Sam Kekovich giving a young boy a, a bit of lamb. And the T-shirt says vegan and proud. So what are they using here? Yeah? Yep, yep. So the humour, passive aggression towards vegan and vegetarians. Normal-looking kid, yeah. 
But they're also doing something else quite clever is they're saying that, you know, the drive to eat meat is so natural and so normal that this child that's never seen meat before goes straight to get, get the flesh and the, and the child's smiling, the child's happy because it's so normal and it's so natural. Um, again, the same idea. We've got the Australian flag, so we're seeing that whole Aussie value thing again. We're seeing humour. The other thing they play with is families and children. Again, families, children, health. So the values that they pull out is health, family and being Australian. That's the three main values that they will pull through every single one of their ads. And every single ad that you ever see from the meat and dairy industry and the egg industry will pull on those values every single time. Um, and it's that whole idea of the great Aussie battler and that we're all Australians. And if you're an Australian, you eat meat. If you're a strong, healthy person, you eat meat. If you're a part of a family, if you're a mother giving and caring for your children, you eat meat and you provide your children with meat. It's the same message over and over and over and over and over again. Frames, though, I talked about two frames. So the frame is affected as to how we, how we receive information ourselves, but we also choose the frame that we put our own message in. So it's kind of the bubble that we put our own message in when we actually push something out there. So I just want to give a couple of examples, and because sometimes it can be as simple as a word. If the federal parliament decided to call an election and the Liberal Party said, if you vote us in this time, we will provide tax relief for all Australians. That sounds like a very positive thing, doesn't it? Why does it sound positive? Getting money back? Yes, absolutely. So they didn't say we're giving everyone tax breaks or we're going to cut tax. They said tax relief. If I say I'm going to relieve you of something, that means I'm going to take a burden away. In reality, if the Liberal Party was to provide tax relief or a tax cut, they would probably be using, um, they would probably choose to um, cut pensions or to, um, you know, re reduce care for disability or something like that. That's where this tax relief would actually come from. But it's that use of that word relief that makes it seem that much more positive. Um, a couple of animal-based ones, and my, I'm going to give my favourite one first because it was, as much as we lost the ag-gag debate in New South Wales, there was one thing that we won, is that we framed the debate. And whoever frames the debate wins the debate. Um, and so we won the debate, but we didn't win the bill. <laughs> um, does anybody know what Senator Beck's federal bill was called? Animal Protection Bill. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a few people called it out. So, I mean, how absurd is that to call it an Animal Protection Bill? Now, if animal groups hadn't already framed the, the bill as an ag-gag bill, then the media would have fallen back to calling it the Animal Protection Bill. And the media interviews would have gone along the lines of animal groups saying, well, this animal protection bill does absolutely nothing to protect animals. In fact, all it does is etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And we keep saying animal protection, animal protection bill. And people who are half listening are absorbing animal protection bill. And people think, well, it can't be that bad. But because we'd already framed it as ag-gag, then the media referred to it as ag-gag. In fact, no media ever referred to it as the animal protection bill. Everyone referred to it as the ag-gag bill. And there was a wonderful interview with uh, Senator Chris Back. Um, and he kept saying, he kept referring to it as the ag-gag bill. <laughs> and he said, it, this isn't an ag-gag bill. If it was an ag-gag bill, you know, ag uh, we would be gagging activists against agriculture. So it's not an ag-gag bill. I thought, oh, just keep saying it, sweetheart. Just... <laughs> because anyone that's listening, and they've done research on this as well, they found that if you talk about something and you're framing it in the way that the enemy has framed it, they will misunderstand your message. So if you start talking about something that people already perceive as positive and you start talking about it negatively, they won't actually understand what you're saying. So they'll only absorb part of that message. The opposite of that is something like free range. 
So what does free range entail? Just the words alone. What does that mean to most people? Freedom. Freedom. Ranging. Very, very positive terms. So they have framed a form of farming as free range. So if we were to do an interview and to say, oh, free range is no good, in fact, free range has, is terrible and this free range farm, etc., etc., people who are half listening won't actually absorb what we're saying. Or it's like the little graphic that we had with the optical illusion. It doesn't match all the information that we've otherwise been told. What we're saying is free range is bad. It's like saying, um, you know, freedom and... Um, you know, um, life and um, renewal and relief are all bad things. It doesn't actually make sense, so it's very difficult for people to absorb it. And a much more appropriate term than free range would be something like partial confinement system. So if we started to say, well, this partial confinement system and the farmers started to call it free-range systems, then we're going to start to create a proper debate as to whether free-range is actually humane. So know what frames that they've created and never use them. The problem we've got at the moment is that the industry has created very strong frames and they've been using them for a very long time. So it's very ingrained and it's very difficult to change those frames now. But once we know what frames they are using, then we can start to actually challenge them. Sarah Blasco with We Won't Run. You're on 3CR, Community Radio, 8.55am, or perhaps you are live streaming the program via the internet, so via the 3CR website. You can do that, or you could listen to your favourite program at any time during the week by using the audio on demand option, also available from the 3CR website. But right now you are listening to Freedom of Species Animal Advocacy on the airwaves and we are at the final leg of a presentation that we're broadcasting today that was originally presented at the Animal Activist Forum back in October in 2015. The presenter is Emma Hurst, who is a registered psychologist and also the campaign director at Animal Liberation New South Wales. The talk focused on psycholinguistics, so that is the psychology of language and how you can use the psychology of language to create strong messages and by doing that, hopefully create change. Psycholinguistics. When we're talking about writing a message or giving a specific message, make sure you explain who does what to whom. Animal cruelty is human caused so it can be fixed by humans if it's not human if it's not caused by humans it can't be fixed by humans so we have to find the actor and expose them in your message so your sentences have to convey that people do things and i know this sounds really simple but when i look at some of the things that i've written over the years i see statements like Um, there was a letter I sent out on behalf of Animal Liberation and one of the sentences said, it was talking about the ag gag and it said, this bill will be devastating for animals or something. Now, the bill's not going to be devastating for animals. The bill is just words on paper. What I should have written was something along the lines of, the National Party has introduced a bill that will be devastating for animals. 
and it's much stronger. So bills don't damage animals. You know, this year won't damage animals. It's people. So we have to find the actor and point them out. An example um, that was done in psychology, there was a research group and they were split up into two groups. So they were both shown that video from the, uh, when they were singing and Justin tore some of Janet Jackson's clothing off. So they were shown the same video. One group was told um, Justin tore the clothing and the other group was told the clothing was torn. What they found was the group that was told Justin tore the clothing, when asked what kind of um, punishment they should receive, they suggested a higher fine for indecency by about 30% on average. So once we had an actor to blame for it, we increased what should happen to that person. So we need to convey um, that that problem with animal cruelty is human-made. Metaphors. When we're creating messages, we need to think about what it is we want people to think at the end, what we actually want people to decide. So when we start to create the messages, you need to think all the way to the very end as to what conclusions do we want people to actually draw from this message. So in another study, uh, they had uh, different groups and they started to talk about crime. So one group was given statements about crime, such as, we need to fight crime, we need to get tough on crime. And when subjects were asked, how are we going to deal with crime in this city, they came up with harsher punishments as the answer to crime. The other group were given crime statements that had a disease metaphor. So they were told that crime is spreading, that it's infesting our streets or plaguing our city, Subjects came up with preventative solutions to crime, such as after-school care centres, because when we think about disease, we try to prevent disease from occurring. So depending on how you actually start to frame your message and add in metaphors will change how people conclude your message. This is the last thing I want to go over. If you are interested in it, I've got a small number of copies of this actual um, slide um, but it's also available at story-based strategy and I also recommend that people go to the changeagency.org as well. The uh, story-based strategy, they have some fantastic resources so I strongly encourage you to go through it but I just wanted to go through one. This is called the Battle of the Story. The Battle of the Story looks at the elements of the story and it looks at their story and our story. So what is the story that industry is selling? So when I talk about the frames people had and the stories that they've heard, they've heard industry's story and they've heard our story. Or they may not have heard our story and have only heard the industry story. So this is a really great way to have a look at the different elements of that st story. And so you really need to take a step back because when we're looking at industry story, we're not looking at whether it's correct or not. We're just looking at what are they actually trying to sell? What is their story? So if we look at the conflict, we ask, how is the problem being framed? So how are the industry framing animal rights groups? So they're framing us as things such as terrorists or frightening people. Um, who is the conflict between? So they might say that the conflict is between them and us. Are they good guys? Are they bad guys? And what's at stake? So their livelihoods are at stake. Sometimes they use messages that their family safety is at stake by these frightening people who break in in the middle of the night in their farm that's two kilometres away from where they're living. Characters, so who are the victims? And when we start to break down these stories, we start to see some interesting things. So obviously the farmers see themselves as the victims and their children. But when you start to think about it, another message that they send out is that the animals are victims. So often we see in the media them saying things like, oh, these activists break in and then they spread disease and all these animals die. And, you know, the activists don't understand what they're doing and they're not taking biosecurity and all these animals are stressed because people are coming in the middle of the night and that's why they look so stressed and upset in the footage. So they're actually creating a new message that animals are the victims it, by, from the animal rights activists. Imagery that they use, um, so what sort of metaphors are they using? Are they using specific symbols um, or examples? 
So things like in the US, they, they love the idea of the balaclava to try to make um, activists look even more frightening, like there's something to hide. Um, foreshadowing. So how does each story show us the future? And what is the vision the story offers? And how things will be if the conflict resolves? So we go through each of those stages and really start to nut out. And you can do it for very specific stories as well. You could look at that specifically for dairy or specifically within the egg industry. And then you look at your own story as well. So how do the the change agents or the advocates, how do we frame the story? And when you break each one down, then you can start to look at a few things. Like what assumptions? Are there unstated assumptions in our story or in their story? What does somebody have to believe to accept that that story is true? And what values are reflected in that story? Once we nut out what values that they're using, then we know what values to heighten on ours and reduce on theirs. Is there unstated assumptions? So obviously with that whole idea of that activists are harming animals, there's an unstated assumption that activists don't really understand what animals need. Activists are a little bit lower IQ, maybe, because they don't understand, um, and that they're reckless, and that they don't really care about animals. And that's quite a weak argument. So we can actually, once we start to realise what some of their weaknesses are as well within their argument, then we know where to sort of come in and try, try to challenge some of those. What of that needs to be exposed? So I'll flick back to those websites... So that uh, battle of the story was from the story-based strategy, um, but they do a whole lot of stuff as well, um, breaking down the stories, working out where the values come in, working out where um, the beliefs that are used and how we can actually turn it around and actually try to expose that and change it. If something's a really strongly held belief, sometimes it's better not to challenge it. Uh, One thing I find, like, I mean, for example... Uh, the great Aussie battler farmer is something that is so strong that it's better to ignore it and reframe it and try a different angle than to say, oh, but, you know, the Aussie battler farmer doesn't exist or we don't care about that person. It's not a strong argument, so we're better off to actually find a different angle. So, for example, um, your target may become um, Australian livestock or it might become Australian Pork Limited, because that's not the Aussie battler. So you might change your target group based on the fact that the whole great Aussie battler's got a lot of public support already. Please excuse the very abrupt end to that presentation. It did roll directly into question time that wouldn't translate very well onto radio, so had to nip it in the bud there. The presenter was Emma Hurst from Animal Liberation New South Wales. She's also a registered psychologist. I guess you could tell from the presentation um, a lot of insight in the way, into the ways we use language and how that can change our behaviour. Um, the good and not so good. It was a presentation for the Animal Activist Forum back in October 2015 and this is an event which is held every year in the third weekend of October every year and the purpose of the forum can be described apparently in three words learn network and engage but if you would like a longer blurb it is uh The idea of the forum or the conference is to bring together animal activists from around Australia for one power-packed weekend of workshops, international speakers, roundtables and presentations from some of the most influential social change activists and organisers in the world. And I think we've heard from one of them today on the program. We've already broadcast other presentations from the forum last year and possibly from previous years, yeah, Um, and they can be found on our website, freedomofspecies.org. Now, 2016, the Animal Activist Forum will go on. So in 2016, it is going to be held in the sunny Gold Coast. Registration opens in July, but that doesn't mean that you can't have a bit of input right now. And a great forum consists of really good presenters and a great audience. 
right now the forum is looking for potential presenters at the forum. So you, if you know anyone who you think would be good to present at the forum, um, and they can have a Skype presentation as well if they're from overseas or if they can't get to the beautiful Gold Coast, um, they could do their presentation over Skype. So if you do think of someone, you can email the organisers at presentations at activistforum.com with your suggestions. So that's it for us today on Freedom of Species. I'd like to, of course, thank Emma Hurst, but also the Animal Activist Forum organisers for giving permission to broadcast this presentation on today's show. If you would like to contact Freedom of Species with suggestions of perhaps shows you would like us to cover um, or people you'd like us to interview, you can at info at freedomofspecies.org. We have Twitter, we have Facebook, and we also, as I keep mentioning throughout today's program, a website. So um, please get in contact with us. We do always do appreciate correspondence. I will leave you with another Nick Cave tune. This one is from a B-side and rarities album. It's called Everything Must Converge. Everything must converge in time And so it goes by and by Everything must converge someday You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.